Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out in the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade. This is America with Rich Valdez, powered by PolitiWeek.com. And Rich Valdez is with us, former Christie administration official. You worked for Chris Christie, you've been in politics, done a lot of public service stuff. Rich Valdez, columnist now with the Washington Times. This is America. Richie V, you're on the air with the nation. The nation. This is America with your host, Rich Valdez. What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S right here, 17 blocks away from Madison Square Garden, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. And man, there's a whole lot going on. Check this out. How old is the oldest person in America? I do have the answer. It's rhetorical. But first, you live by the gun, you die by the gun. 13-year-old Latin King was on the street with a gun in his hand at 2.37 a.m., He was killed by police, so R.I.P. to Little Homicide, as he was known on the street, a.k.a. Adam Toledo. There's been a lot of uh, talk about Adam Toledo, and I'm not here to demonize this kid, turn him into something that he's not. I'm just going to highlight who he was. And it doesn't mean that he should have died. I don't think anybody should honestly be killed. This was very unfortunate. Now, I do agree, if you're going to pull a gun on a cop, you're going to get shot. I've said it before, when cops pull out their gun, it's not for show, it's not to shoot you in the leg, it's not to shoot you in the finger and Hollywood style shoot the gun out of your hand. Not at all. It's to end the threat, and to end the threat permanently. The debate here is over eight-tenths of a second. From the moment the kid has the gun and the cop draws his gun, because he sees the gun pulling up the gun in his right hand from behind him, because he's got it behind his back. It's all on video. And the kid decides, I'm dropping this gun. And he puts his hands up. The problem is, he dropped the gun as he was raising his hand. So it looked like he was about to shoot the cop. Cops don't wait until you're like taking aim down on one knee with one eye closed, looking straight through the sight to hit them. You even reach and you're Swiss cheese. And that's what happened to this poor kid. And it was one shot from what I saw. So not Swiss cheese. And I don't mean to be insensitive or anything like that. I'm just saying this is really unfortunate. This is really unfortunate. The kid seemed like he was going to give up. Too little, too late. And it's a damn shame. I feel bad. I really, really do. But this is one of those things that, you know, I may not be right on. I may be right on. I don't know. I don't know the answer. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're like, you know what, Rich? I had this talk with somebody very close to me. And they told me, you know what? That's not good enough. A dead 13-year-old is not good enough. We need to level up. This policy that we have of if they're even reaching, we need to revisit that. I'm extremely police biased. I typically always favor cops because I have a lot of experience with that through family members of mine that served on the job in NYPD. And my own very brief and very limited experience as a volunteer in Jersey. So I see things from a different perspective. Anyway, now, Don Limon, as I like to call him, Don Limon, Don Lemon... He also says that all police shootings are different. That's something that you've heard in a lot of different places, and it's true. Not everything is the same way each and every time. 
But I want you to listen to Don Limon on CNN saying that all police shootings are not created equal. I just think at this point, we cannot judge all police shootings. We cannot put them all in the same realm. They make split-second decisions, and some decisions, sometimes they are tragic, sometimes they are warranted, sometimes they are not. It is terrible that this is a 13-year-old boy, and his family, I know, is suffering, and the people who love him. Um, But we we have to see what happens. It's, look, I wouldn't want to be a police officer. I just would not want to be a police officer. And you know what they'll say to you? What? Oh, yeah, you would have when I joined, but not now. And then they will immediately say, thanks to people like you. I, I don't and think that's right. I, I don't believe that. I don't think that. Look, no I'm one telling gets, you, that's no, what they say. No, I know that's what they say. But no one is no profession is beyond reproach. No, there is not one profession where it cannot be improved. Uh, I know that there are different circumstances for different professions. I did not sign up to go into danger uh, as a police officer. I did sign up to go into danger possibly as if we have to go to war, if we have to go out there on the streets and cover it. But that is not in my job description. That is in a police officer's job description. It's also to keep the peace. It is also uh, part of their jobs to be able to make those split-second decisions and, and make the right decision. So while we're saying, hey, I don't it's tough. I don't know what I would do. Police officers are trained to do that. I'm not. The average person is not trained to do that. That's right. He's 100% right. Don Lemon is calling it correct. Maybe he's uh, dating a cop and they've opened up his eyes. Who knows? But I can tell you this or he has some cops in his family, friends, whatever. Bottom line here, he's right. These things vary. There's a bunch of different scenarios. That's why they have other cops like Internal Affairs that investigate these things to decide was this the appropriate amount of uh, force that was used, et cetera, based on the rules that they have? Because everybody has different rules. That's another thing. People think that because there's uh, one set of rules here, that that's the set of rules everywhere. And that's not necessarily the case ever, truly. But they have distinction amongst their opinion. There's some heterodoxy going on at CNN because Chris Cuomo says, nope, the real problem here is that white kids must get killed in order for police reform to actually happen. Now, CNN host Chris Cuomo uh, Friday said that police reform in the U.S. will not happen until, quote, white people's kids start getting killed, end quote. Cuomo made the remarks in the context of a couple of recent police shootings, and this is in the Daily Wire, where suspects didn't comply with law enforcement or attempted to run. And as you know, the answer is, you really do. This is Cuomo, quote from him. You don't like it, I don't like it. It scares me. Shootings, gun, laws, access to weapons, etc. Well, you know what? Let's play the audio of him saying it. Check this out. Gun laws, access to weapons? Oh, you, I know when they'll change. Your kids start getting killed? White people's kids start getting killed? Smoking that doobie that's actually legal probably in your state now, but they don't know what it was, and then the kid runs and it pop, 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 pop. Cop was justified. Why'd you run? Oh, he had a baseball game tonight. Huh. The white kid, oh, big family, that house over there, those start piling up. What is going on with these police? Oh, what? Maybe we shouldn't even have police. That kind of mania, that kind of madness, that'll be you. That'll be the majority, because it's your people. That'll be you, that kind of mania, that kind of madness. Now, listen, I get it. Uh, It seems Chris Cuomo's either uh, suffering from a serious case of pandering or... He's just really frustrated, as am I. Nobody wants to see people being shot dead, especially when there's all sorts of other police shootings that go totally unpublicized. 
But when you get one that involves someone of color or a young man, this is the thing. Listen, I've been to Newark, New Jersey a million times. I used to work in New Jersey. I actually served separately from my um, volunteer police work with the Nutley Police Department. I was a police chaplain in Nutley and served as an emergency services chaplain, did some training at a theological seminary to do that. And I don't talk about it that much because a lot of stuff you really can't talk about. But I can tell you that I would go on ride-alongs with the Newark police and we would see kids, teenage kids, and the cops would go and pull them over and ask them, can you give us the guns? And these kids always had guns. And the cops would kind of just basically tell them, look, there's a police athletic league. We uh, want to try to get you into boxing. Come check me out next week at the boxing gym, whatever it was, in order to get them to give up the guns. Then they started gun buyback programs where they would you know, pay you if you turned in your gun to get guns off the street. And I remember riding with a, t- a couple of guys. Sergeant Leslie Jones, Newark Police Department, great guy. And Detective Mustafa had a big, long beard. Matter of fact, he uh, was the first cop to not to refuse to shave his beard. And the case went to the Supreme Court and he won. And uh, he was probably the first cop in America that was allowed to uh, keep a beard and wear the uniform. Anyway, uh, Detective Mustafa, I remember him telling me, I got a pretty good eye for guns, but nobody's got a nose for guns like Sergeant Jones. And we would just drive. And, you know, the point was to, to speak with people in the community and bridge the gap between faith-based institutions and the public with the police there. And these guys would just find people with guns. And even there were times where they would just initiate the conversation and be like, you see those guys right there? Those guys are all carrying guns. And they were all young. You're talking 17 and younger. And they would build relationships and try and see them again later and eventually have a level of rapport where they could say, listen, man, I know you're carrying guns. I can catch you a... I can give you a charge where you catch a a lot of heat or let's work this out. And they tried to be good with these guys that were on the street. It's a very tough job. And I think Don Lemon was right when he said it. But I want you to hear the rest of what Chris Cuomo had to say. Check this out. Black people start getting all guns, forming militias, protect themselves. Can't trust deep state. You'll see a wave of change in access and accountability. We saw it in the 60s. That's when it changes, because that's when it's you. So my job is to show you in them, because they're before the grace. And the grace is forgiveness that none of us deserve for the blessings that we're wasting in this country. That is our reality. And the reality is clear, and the state of play is unchanging. And that is not a recipe for any type of longevity. Well, he's right about that. We can't survive if we're going to destroy ourselves. Now, I'm not agreeing with what he said because I think that he's um, out of line and painting it the wrong way. And the reason I think he's out of line is because he's saying, again, reinforcing what he said before. Nothing changes until you kill the white kids. It's not necessarily true. And the reason it's not is because opioids are killing more white kids than anybody else. Important people, influential people, all sorts of people. White people I'm talking about. And I'm not saying that other people who are VIP and influential and important are not white people. I'm just saying it happens to be that influential white people have lost their kids to pills, to whatever, oxy, whatever it is. And nothing's happened. It's continued to grow every single year since I first heard that it was an epidemic. And that was in New Jersey. And they're saying that all this fentanyl and all this and all that stuff is coming through the southern border. I got to tell you, when I was in the Christie administration, that wasn't necessarily the case. 
And this is a quick tangent. I remember going to something called Jakarta, G-C-A-D-A, the Governor's Council on Drug Abuse uh, Association Administration, something like that. And the guy that was in charge, who was the guy that met with everybody, with the Homeland Security team at the state level, with the feds, with the DEA, with um, Customs Enforcement, because they're all at Port Newark. He was saying that Port Newark and Port Elizabeth, the busiest port here in the New York tri-state area, he said that that was where the majority of the heroin and fentanyl was coming in, right through the shipping containers. And they knew it and they were working diligently to stop it. But somehow it didn't stop. Somehow there was more to do because they couldn't get it all. That's how bad it was. Kind of like this coronavirus. It's everywhere. You know it. You know this one may be sick. You know that everybody's hiding out, wearing masks, getting vaccines, whatever it is. And we still can't stop this thing. That's how this opioid thing is. And again, that's affecting white people. So I think what he's saying is a sham. It's not accurate on the facts. But moving along, because he's talking about black children, people of color, etc. I want you to hear what the leader of BLM, the head Marxist in charge, had to say. But before we do that, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, the audience, because I know we talked about a lot of heavy things right here. We talked about killing, we talked about teenagers being killed, all sorts of stuff. And... Without you, I can't do it, right? You are the smartest audience that's out there. You guys share this information. You listen to the information. You show up week after week, and the numbers are there to prove it, and I thank you for it. And that's why we're here. That's why we're all here. So I want you to keep it locked right here, but don't move a muscle because straight ahead, the head Marxist at BLM has a new view on private property, not the one that Karl Marx had. And uh, I'm Rich Valdez. You're listening to This Is America. This is America. Para Inglés, o primal número dos. Para Rich Valdez. Y esto es América. Ahora. All right, welcome back, New York. So the head of BLM, one of the founders, Patrice Khan Colors, she says that the fact that she is BLMing, buying large mansions, does not mean that she's not a Marxist, that the millionaires and Marxists can coexist. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's what Castro said too, because he became the millionaire. That's exactly what they said in Venezuela, right? Hugo Chavez said the same thing. Look at every single oligarch that came out of Russia and then the Ukraine. And, and we look at that and we say, of course, there's always somebody skimming money off the top. They're skimming the money off of you and me. That's how the whole Marxist scam works. But I want you to hear it from her mouth because, I mean, I couldn't do it justice otherwise. This is Patrice Khan Colors. She is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And she's on a black news channel yesterday saying that owning four homes doesn't betray her Marxist principles. Check this out. There's mm -hmm. also a critique, though, from the left that would say, um, if you are a trained Marxist, if we're talking about a certain kind of radical politic, that extravagant homes of any sort or multiple properties of any sort is itself contradictory to the ideology that you hold. And so it's not about having money per se, but that it's about, uh, or about property per se, but it's about there being a potential contradiction between your expressed politics and your lived practice. Sure, and I think that is a critique that is um, wanting. And I say that because um, the, the, the way that I live my life is in direct support to black people, including my black family members, uh, first and foremost. And 
uh, for so many black folks who are able to invest um, in themselves and their community, they choose to invest in their family. And that's what I've chosen to do. Um, I have a child, I have a brother that has severe mental illness that I take care of. Um, I support my mother um, and I support many other family members of mine. And so I see um, uh, my money as not my own. I see it as um, my family's money as well. Okay, so now the family is her collective. Her collective is the family. Well, guess what? My family is my collective too. So she's going to take the BLM money. They've raised 90 million bucks. Now, listen, I'm not going to say that raising 90 million bucks is a bad thing for a political cause or whatever movement it is. Uh, I wish I could raise 90 million bucks. Maybe I can. Maybe I should try. But the first thing I'm going to say, and of course, if I get a piece for being you know, the head of the organization, my salary, I don't want anybody coming at me. So I understand it on that level. The problem is I do preach capitalism. I say it all the time. Make as much money as you can and give away as much of it as you want. Be charitable. Be led by God. But what she's saying is basically she accepts capitalism. Capitalism's okay when it's her, but it's not okay when it's anybody else, right? Because they're always yelling, tax the rich, tax the rich, tax the rich. And it's mansions now, mansions, Marxism. Yeah, it can coexist. It doesn't really can, uh, betray her commie principles. Listen. I was looking at uh, Gab.com and I saw this and it says, for two years in a row, cities have been burning, burnt to the ground by radical domestic terrorists who seek to destroy the United States from within over perceived problems of racism. Things that have been socially engineered have been accepted as reality. While foot soldiers from the Black Lives Matter movement are out there destroying this country, co-founder Patrice Kahn colors is buying multiple high-end homes for millions of dollars. It pays to be a Marxist only when you're in an elite, privileged position like Patrice. The rest of us suffer and watch our country burn. I think that's true, and I think it's messed up. Now get this, Brianna Taylor's mom just blasted BLM, saying that they don't do a damn thing. I thought this was interesting because, you know, years ago, you guys know I worked with James O'Keefe uh, for Project Veritas and uh, oversaw multiple projects. And one of the projects we had was in Staten Island for the former, um, uh, well, she's a former, she's, uh, I should say, late, the, the late Erica Garner, the daughter of Eric Garner, who uh, was, you know, famously uh, died after uh, running with the cops, and et cetera, I, the first I can't breathe scenario. And we got her on hidden camera saying, you know, making the sign with her fingers, it's all about the money. And she said, Al Sharpton, he's all about the money. And that's exactly what's going on right now, it seems, with Brianna Taylor's mother slamming Black Lives Matter, calling the organization a fraud, and says they've never done a damn thing for us. Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, slammed the Black Lives Matter movement on Wednesday and calling the organization a fraud on Facebook. Palmer gave credit to friends, family, and local members of the community for supporting her family after 26-year-old Brianna Taylor was uh, shot and killed in a botched police raid. At least that's how this is being reported here in March of 2020. In the post, she criticized Black Lives Matter Louisville chapter and called Kentucky State Representative uh, Atisha Attica, excuse me, Attica Scott a fraud. Representative Scott is a Democrat who has pushed to prohibit no-knock warrants, later saying... I've never personally dealt with BLM Louisville and personally have found them to be a fraud. Attica Scott is another fraud. And that's Ms. Palmer 
Breonna Taylor's mother. So I think if that is the community, right, because BLM went nuts out in the streets, beating up the cops, throwing rocks at cops, throwing frozen water bottles at cops, spray painting police cars, burning police cars, doing all sorts of things, raising all sorts of havoc. All of that happened. Yet the same community that they're supposed to be serving isn't being served. Now, I think you got to look at the left and you think we have to look at what they're doing and then say, what is it that we've got to do? Now, what one person is doing, at least this one teacher that I saw, I think he's making a difference. Saying, I can't stay silent. New York City math teacher rips school's critical race theory as indoctrination. This is in BizPack Review. Excellent piece by uh, Teresa Monroe Hamilton. A New York City high school math teacher has put his job and reputation on the line by publishing an essay slamming the indoctrination of critical race theory that's being force-fed on his students. In a column written by Grace Church High School teacher Paul Ross entitled, I refuse to stand by while my students are indoctrinated. And it was posted Tuesday night on an opinion site from Barry Weiss, who used to be an editor at the Times. The Grace Church School is an elite private school in Manhattan, charges $57,000 a year in tuition. Rossi proclaimed that my school is asking me to embrace anti-racism, anti-racism training and pedagogy that I believe is deeply harmful to students. He also remarked, quote, Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out on the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500, or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC, we are professional grade. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum, restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. And now, shop what you love and save $2 on each participating item when you buy three or more with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. I know that by attaching my name to this, I'm risking not only my current job, but my career as an educator. Since most schools, both public and private, are now captive to this backward ideology. But witnessing the harmful impact it has on children, I can't stay silent, end quote. Rossi contends that his school, quote, like so many others, induces students via shame and sophistry to identify primarily with their race before their individual identities are even fully formed. Students are pressured to conform to their opinions, to those broadly associated with the race and gender and minimize or dismiss individual experiences and don't match those other assumptions. All of this is done in the name of equity. But it is the opposite of fair, he wrote. In reality, all of this reinforces the worst impulses we have as human beings, our tendency toward tribalism and sectarianism that a truly liberal education is meant to transcend. He pointed out that during the recent mandatory whites-only student and faculty Zoom meeting, that he questioned whether one must define oneself by terms of racial identity at all in order to model for students that they should feel safe to question ideological assertions and if they felt moved to do so. 
And he goes on and on. It's a very good piece saying, uh, we've always held the goal of fostering an environment that is safe and welcoming for all members of the community across a myriad of differences. And that's the uh, principle over there at Grace. So they're pushing back. They don't agree. But we all know this is true. And of course, after you know, he posted this piece on Barry Weiss's website, this was the response on Twitter. The implications of such actions will be felt for the next 20 years in America. The administrators of public schools are causing neurological disturbances in students, in their beings and in their systems as a whole. In five to 10 years, we're going to see the effects of neo-racism being taught in schools. It's true. Third person says, how much more evidence do people need to see that communists have infiltrated every level of U.S. society? They said they'd take our schools and our media to take our country, and it's exactly what they did. That, my friends, is a damn shame. This is why when people tell me, Rich, what do I do? What do I do? What is it that I got to do? I tell them, listen, no, no, no. It's not about what do I do. It's about look at this guy. Look at what he did. Right? He goes in here and he makes the claim that this is not good and that he's going to stand up for what's, what he believes is right. Saying that he's going to put his name and his career and the future of his career on the line. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I'm really not. I'm just always trying to highlight a, a new way of thinking. I want to open one's mind because I think people oftentimes feel like, all right, great, we've pointed out all the problems. What are the solutions? That is the solution. This guy got in where he can have influence and he said, look, now I'm going to write an op-ed that this is going to make some noise. People are going to realize that I'm going to do this. Whether, whether I fail or whether I win, I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do for these children. I'm not going to teach them. I think his word was using sophistry and some other, uh, some other way to game them. That is the example. Putting yourself and your reputation on the line. Putting your thoughts out there. Trying to get others to organize and coalesce with you. That's the only way you bring about a change. So the next time you or someone next to you, I know this audience is great and you guys are very active, but the next time someone next to you that's part of the conservative movement tells you, what do we do? Tell them, look at this guy, this uh, professor, this teacher, Mr. Rossi. Look at Donald Trump leaving his Fifth Avenue palatial estate in Trump Tower, grabbing his supermodel wife and heading into the swamp and dedicating what looks like it's going to be the rest of his days. Because I got an article here from Justin News that says, He's kind of outlining the plan for the rest of his political career. Keep that in mind. Let that sink in. Plus, straight ahead, we're going to get into what's going on with Russia, 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 and a little bit more of this uh, uh, critical race theory stuff, because I want to talk about that and what's going on with the schools. So bear with me. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America. He's making podcasting great again. This is America with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, Valdez with an S on all social media. So make sure you try me on Parler, on Twitter, on Instagram, all of that fun stuff. I uh, don't do Facebook as much, but I'm, I'm there. So feel free to check me out there. And we're talking about lots of things, but they are walking back now what they said about Russia, right? Or as Trump would say, Russia, Russia, Russia. Walking it back because, well, it's, uh, it's wobbly, right? They're, the intelligence community's now discovered 
that that whole Russian bounty thing was a fake phony fraud. And we're going to jump right into that. But first, I want to finish my thought on what's going on with teachers and what's going on with students and all of that stuff, because I think there's so much censorship of what's really going on that we don't know what's going on. So I withdraw my statement or withdrawn, Your Honor, because that's what's going on. Everybody's walking stuff back. U.S. intelligence walks back Russian bounty claim that Democrats used to attack Trump in 2020. This is from Christina Wong, Breitbart.com. Senior Biden administration official admitted Thursday that United States intelligence community had assessed with only low to moderate confidence the claim that Russian intelligence officers offered the Taliban bounties on the lives of American troops in Afghanistan. Quote, the United States intelligence community assesses with low to moderate confidence that Russian intelligence officers sought to encourage Taliban attacks on U.S. and coalition personnel in Afghanistan in 2019 and perhaps earlier, according to the senior administration official that told reporters this during a background conference call. Despite uncorroborated uh, claims, the New York Times first reported this, no surprise there, that Democrats used this to attack former President Trump before the 2020 election. And now the argument is that he did not care about, or back then the argument was, he did not care about the troops being in harm's way in Afghanistan and was unwilling to confront Russian President Vladimir Putin. Then presidential candidate Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris used the claim to attack Trump and Biden, tweeting on July 1st, 2020, that Trump is doing nothing and it was just an unjustifiable dereliction of duty, is what uh, Kamala Harris tweeted, or I should say Vice President, la visa presidente, uh, la visa presidenta, que mala eres. And Trump let Putin get away with placing bounties on the heads of American troops. Now, Steve Guest put this tweet out of her words saying that the Daily Beast today, U.S. Intel walks back, claim that Russians put bounties on American troops. And this is being reported in lots of different places. Several uh, House Democrats who served on the House Intel Committee pushed the claim as true and attacked Trump for not condemning Putin. Now, of course, you guys remember all that. And there's a bunch of tweets here from a bunch of different people. Everybody kind of going in because they, they went heavy. You know, it's kind of like saying Donald Trump is 12 and a half feet tall. And you're like, yeah, he only looks like he's 6'2", six 6'3", six I don't know. And, and, but nope, he's 12 and a half feet tall. And they just push the line until every last person believes it. And this is what they do. I mean, you got tweets from Senator Elizabeth Warren, Eric Swalwell, everybody. Now, Swalwell of all people, right? What's his nickname? Fang Fang? This is a, it's a travesty. But all of it reminds me of this film by Prager. Dennis Prager, No Safe Spaces. It featured prominent liberals that described themselves as leftists but were ostracized and left for dead, basically, by universities that took offense when they didn't follow the narrative. They got canceled. That's what the left does. They even do it to their own. Like there was this one teacher's aide in the movie who um, decided to share a video with her class about a debate over transgender uh, not even transgenderism, if that's a thing, but over whether changing the laws to require people to ad uh, address people certain ways could be considered unlawful if you went against it. And, and university regulations that started to support that, which looked like a precursor to the law eventually changing. And it was a big thing with Professor Jordan Peterson and uh, another uh, transgender professor whose name is escaping me. 
But the point was, she shows this debate between them that's on the news. And somehow her administrators find out, and they decide that what she did was wrong, and it violated the university's policy on, I guess, um, statements or actions that are harmful to transgender students. And she's in tears. Now, she's a leftist. She identifies as a leftist. She says she's a liberal. And that whether she teaches about Jordan Peterson or not, he's out there, he's loud, and he's very popular. So she says, when they leave our classroom, they're going to have to deal with this. And she said, I took a, an academically neutral position. And they were saying, you can't take a neutral position on something so bad. And I think, if I remember it right, they went on to say, we hate to use the Hitler example, but you can't take an academically neutral position on what Hitler did. Because that's what this is. And again, Peterson was just saying, you don't take away his free speech, forcing him to call someone whatever, you know, ma'am, sir, whatever their pronoun was. So you look at that and it makes you think, man, there's a lot of serious indoctrination going on in universities. And it comes as no surprise. And when you see these riots that are happening, like the ones right now, they just started riots again in Portland. I mean, you would think this is a podcast from last summer instead of from right now, middle of April. But yes, there are police buildings getting burned down. Looking at this piece here. Check this out. Post-millennial, Canadian site. Oregon journalism student charged over Antifa arson attack. An Antifa member in Portland who was charged with felony arson and riot crimes has been revealed to be a journalism student at the University of Oregon. Alma Yesenia Raven Guido, 19 years old of Beaverton, Oregon, has been charged by the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office with two counts of felony rioting, second-degree felony arson, and first-degree felony criminal mischief. A serial riot arrestee, she was arrested again Tuesday night at a Black Lives Matter Antifa riot in North Portland where the police union hall was set on fire. <sighs> it's exhausting to read this stuff, it really is. Some members of the group communicated by radio to use shields and throw projectiles at police while they were wearing black clothing to obscure their identities, said the district attorney. In a press release announcing the charges, some affiliated with the group launched multiple large fireworks towards aircraft that were flying overhead. I mean, and this goes on and on and on. Upon arrest, Grave, uh, Raven Guido was found to be carrying multiple lighters, three plastic bottles, including one that was melted in her backpack. She was also in possession of a crowbar and spray paint. In addition to facing felony charges related to the riot earlier this week, She'd also been charged for her illegal criminal involvement in a separate Antifa riot last year. She's accused of being part of an Antifa mob who came armed with riot gear to attack Portland City Hall on August 25th of 2020. At that riot, Antifa breached City Hall, smashed windows, and tried to set the building on fire. Raven Guido was arrested and charged with multiple misdemeanors at the time of her arrest, and was the case was later dropped. However, new charges were filed and reinstated in this case this week. The Daily Emerald is a student paper at University of Oregon has confirmed that Raven Guido is a journalism student via public records at the university. So, I mean, you look at this, at least I look at that, and I think, this is out of control. We're teaching our kids to be domestic terrorists by allowing them to go to these universities. The universities have pretty much all been taken over. If you don't send your kid to, like, 
um, private Christian college where you know they kind of lean conservative or at least they're normal, where they're not going to teach them that whiteness is bad and whiteness must be eliminated, where they're not going to start um, walking back their thoughts on what Martin Luther King taught about a colorblind society where he said, you know, we're not going to look at the color of their skin, but, but the content of their character, which is now considered wrong. And those in the anti-racist movement, at least from what I've seen, they believe if if you're not committed to anti-racism, which means you have to see everything as racist and start calling it out every day because everything is racist. You know, podcasts where at least one member of the production team doesn't include a person of color. Well, then that's a racist podcast because it, it goes towards white supremacy. I mean, do you see how simple they can make these arguments? And if you're not thinking because you're just consuming all of the stuff they're telling you, you're led to believe, <laughs> listen, how about this? I like to listen to NPR because I, I hear the things they say and I think it's ridiculous. So I can come and share them later, you know, and plus it's, it's really entertaining to me. So I was listening last week. I'm in the car and I hear a woman, I forget her name and I, I don't like to say things without citing people's names, but she's doing an interview with one of the hosts on the show and they're talking about her, uh, I guess it was an Oscar nomination for best hairdresser or best hairstylist for a film. And I believe she may be the first black woman uh, nominated for that. And she says, well, thank you. And she says, but, you know, we probably would have gotten a lot more nominations, at least us African-Americans, if, if we would have had a chance. But the industry has kind of suppressed us. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe there's truth to this. I don't know. But she said it didn't become a thing until Halle Berry and some other um, uh, famous black actress, it might have been uh, Angela Bassett, who I'm a big fan of, by the way, of both of them, said that they demanded a hairstylist or a hair and makeup person on set, on location, at a film shoot, that was black because they needed somebody that understood black hair. Now, I get that. I was a barber and I went to cosmetology school with, honestly, probably about 13, 14, maybe 15, uh, 14 black girls, a white girl, and one Puerto Rican girl or two Puerto Rican girls. And, and I was the only guy for a long time until my buddy Eric Munoz came into the class. Casper, big shout out to my guy, Cas Paris. Anyway, so I, I, I understand and appreciate all of the nuance in cutting different hair textures. I totally get it. It's not like there's a separate school you go to to learn how to cut white hair, black hair, Asian hair, but there are differences for sure. I, lots of differences. You know, hair textures and hair types matter. So that sounds like a slogan, right? It's a new movement. All hair matters. But check this out. The reason I bring this up is because she made, she made it sound like no one other than someone that's black could know how to do black hair. And I thought, I've got lots of black hair. You learn by practicing on black people. It's different, but you learn. And I learned that way, and I'm not black. I've cut white people's hair, and I'm not white. So it doesn't mean that because I learned how to cut hair on my Hispanic friends growing up as a teenager and then I went to school for that, that doesn't mean that I, I'm only uh, trained in cutting the hair of one racial group or one ethnicity. But she truly believed that and she wasn't doing it maliciously to, to um, minimize another race or to um, prop up her own race. It was just matter of fact statements from her saying, well, you know, I'm black. I've always done my own hair. I've done other people's hair. And you need somebody that can do African-American hair as well as Caucasian hair. So clearly, you know, uh, I, I was a good fit. 
or something to that effect. And I thought to myself, kudos to her for winning. I'm happy for her. I'm proud of her even. But I don't think this argument is helping us as a people. That you have to be, it's like, oh, we're only going to hire black cops. We're only going to hire black social workers. We're only going to hire, you know, again, because that goes towards this critical race theory, which is the elimination of whiteness and all this other crazy stuff that they're talking about. So ultimately, I think what's important here is that we don't live our lives, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, through the lens of racism. We can't come in, at least I don't come into the studio and go, oh, that guy's black, he must be really good on the board. He must be a great engineer. That's not how life works. You see how they work, and then if they're whatever race they are, they're whatever race they are. (laughs) Their race never really plays a part in how good they are at their job. I don't think anybody says, wow, this guy's a phenomenal athlete. He must be black. Or thank God he's black. Or only black people can do that. I I don't think so. I've never heard that. So, you know, whether it's um, Larry Bird or any of these other um, uh, very famous white basketball players, I don't think there's this distinction that's made between white players and black players, at least not yet. But I would say give it some time before the NBA says we must purge the NBA of whiteness. We must purge professional sports of whiteness. We must purge academia of whiteness. We must purge talk radio, the police, and the police. I mean, where does it end? If you see my trend, this is something that's self-defeating. It doesn't help. Racial supremacy, whichever race you want to inject, is wrong no matter what, no matter when. Now, one person that ended their life recently, and I started this before, the oldest person in America, Hester Ford, oldest person in America, dead at 116 years old. And before you ask, yes, she's African-American. God bless her. African-American woman, beautiful woman, dressed beautifully in this photo. America's oldest person has died, but she left behind quite a legacy. Not the least of which are some 120 great-great-grandchildren. Wow, God bless her. You have to stand for something. You got to know stuff. And I know you do, but I want you to get others to do it because as this show is growing, and it is because you're sharing it and you're sending it to other people, more and more people are getting involved in this movement toward liberty. It's not just me that loves liberty. I know it's all of you. We have to stand for something because if we stand for nothing, we'll fall for anything. And the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people like you to sit there and do nothing. Do something, take action, be smart, read something, know something, reach out to somebody. So until the next time, America, hasta la próxima. I am Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America. Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out on the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade.